1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Rebecca Roulier, Deputy Director of the Boston, Massachusetts nonprofit, Doc Wayne. Becky is a former NCAA Division I student athlete and college soccer coach. A licensed mental health clinician, she earned both a master's degree in education and a certificate of advanced graduate study and counseling with a sub-concentration in sports psychology from Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. As a coach, she holds a national diploma from United Soccer Coaches. Becky Roulier, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Chris.
1: Becky, you have an impressive story about your involvement in sports, both as an athlete and a coach, that I know our audience is going to love. I'm also looking forward to our conversation later in the podcast about youth sports, but first let's focus on your current work. Your path to becoming a mental health professional began in a very unique way. Would you please share that story?
2: Of course. So happy to share that and thanks again for having me today. So I was a two-sport student-athlete at Boston University and unfortunately suffered a career-ending injury and I think we'll get to that later in the podcast but Um, As most athletes do, I went into coaching, just following that uh, pull from sport and really being interested in it. And I had the unique situation of having two female uh, student athletes approach me as the coach, given that caring, trusting relationship that happens between the coach and the athlete. And they actually revealed some mental health symptoms, which at the time I had no idea and was honestly unequipped to provide services to them, but it really made me think about how I could be a better athletic coach. And so fast forward a little bit, I ended up in graduate school for a sports psychology program and then fast forward again. And I really started to understand that a lot of the conversations with my athletes Were really about their mental health symptoms. And then, um, you know, long story short, I became a mental health clinician.
1: And how did that path take you to where you are today, specifically at Doc Wayne?
2: Yeah, good question. So uh, during that graduate school experience where I really was anticipating learning sports psychology skills and trying to help people become sort of uh, gold medalists when they had been silver medalists, I uh, went through a few practicum experiences and I was at a college athletics um, practicum where the more I understood about what athletes were going through, the more I knew that they needed um, that mental health skills training. And so uh, after graduation, I ended up at the Justice Resource Institute, JRI, and their Walden Street School for Girls. Which, um, if you don't know JRI, they're a great organization here in New England. But um, it really struck me um, how they were using creative work uh, in the clinical space to learn, to to help kids with art, dance, music, things like that. And um, one of the funny things about that was I actually really... uh, was really spoken to by the fact that they had a dog present in the residence um, and that they were using that as a therapeutic tool. So um, JRI actually housed Doc Wayne Youth Services. At the time, we were known as Doc Wayne Athletic League or DeWall. And so part of my job there was to be a Doc Wayne coach, um, And then Doc Wayne spun off, became a separate 501c3. And 10 years later, I'm on this journey and this wild ride. But that's really how it started.
1: And for those of our listeners uh, not from the New England region, how is Doc Wayne founded? What's its mission? And what sort of success has it had to date?
2: Yes. So Susan Wayne was a pioneer or is a pioneer in the mental health space. And she was really looking to try to bring the clinical skills that kids and adolescents needed to the place that they wanted to be. So she was fully aware that these kids really wanted to play soccer, basketball, flag football. And at the time, softball was one of our sports. But they weren't so interested in going to the clinician's office and having these, you know, deep um, psychological conversations. So she was trying to use sport as an engagement hook to be able to teach these skills um, that the kids really needed. And we've been really fortunate uh, since that time to be able to be recognized by a number of incredible organizations and entities. Um, Few of them are London's Beyond Sport. And we won the inaugural sport award from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. But to me, those things are so wonderful, but it's most important that we consider some of our uh, great accomplishments as providing engaging and accessible services to kids and also creating a workplace that's supportive of well-being for our team.
1: As a uh, former division one athlete and coach, I'm sure you appreciate getting those awards. It's just something that's in, in the DNA. So congratulations to you and the team, that's terrific. Thank you. So obviously the pandemic this past year has had a huge impact on our lives. How has this affected your organization's work, its staff, and the people you serve?
2: Yeah, it certainly has. Most people in this world have been impacted by COVID in some way. There's a few different layers uh, in terms of the impact of COVID. COVID. And on an organizational level, we've had to pivot to providing telehealth services and being really creative about how sports can happen over Zoom, especially the team component of sports. is very difficult to do, but we were able to create a new manual for that. And our staff, uh, not only have they experienced the typical struggles of the general population, like isolation. Um, and in the financial struggles, but really have been able to gracefully handle a very demanding environment of online work. And, um, you know, having those opportunities for self care and separation from the clinical works, reduced because they're working at home, and it all starts to merge together at some point. Um, And for our kids, it's just been a tremendous layering of stressors, some which were there before, certainly, and others not, and then some of those existing symptoms around mental health have truly been exacerbated. So um, stressors like housing instability, parents or guardians losing jobs, um, everything that we're all so familiar with with COVID, but it's even more difficult for them because they have these existing challenges.
1: Yeah, we've been fortunate um, in terms of being able, my wife and I to be flexible and working from home. But as the the school schedules have changed from alternating days or going full time, some students and others not. So right now our youngest in elementary school is full-time, our two in high school are, are hybrid. And so, you know, I can't imagine the stress that folks that are dealing with that, that they can't work from home, how they're coping with that. And so I appreciate folks like you being able to, to step in there and offer some some guidance and support. So thank you for that work.
2: You're welcome. It's truly been quite difficult for almost everyone.
1: Yeah, no question. You've made the point earlier that from a mental health perspective, the pandemic is far from over. With people not receiving the vaccine, you know, spring is here, kids are returning to school, we've got the NCAA basketball tournament, (laughs) spring training in Florida in the Cactus League, life seems to slowly be getting back to normal. Why wouldn't mental health issues start to disappear?
2: Yeah, So obviously, we're all feeling a little bit more hopeful, and I was telling you when we signed on that I was looking out my window, just really anticipating the the ability to go out into the 65-degree weather, but really to not lose sight of the mental health struggles and why they're going to continue is that it's been a year of stressors and essentially low-level trauma. On people, and it just doesn't evaporate overnight. And to name a few things that the pandemic has done over the year, many people are suffering from bereavement, so they've lost people in their lives, the isolation of working from home, or even if they're allowed to go to work, just the loss of their social circles. Loss of income. Additionally, there's been an increase in alcohol and drug use. And the psychological effects of COVID are a bit unknown at this point, but they are seeing symptoms for some people who have long COVID. And also people have missed mental health and physical uh, doctors' appointments. So there's going to be a catch-up period there, but truly it's been an overall layering of stressors and Communities and populations that um, were previously impacted by access issues around looking for a provider and seeking services were most hard hit by COVID as well. So that's also something to put on the radar.
1: Yeah, you mentioned uh, alcohol and drug use. A neighbor of mine uh, owns one of the local liquor stores, and he said that pretty much every day over the last year has been like the holiday season, like Thanksgiving to Christmas, and. You know, that there are going to be repercussions somewhere down the road. We're probably seeing it now, but um, there will be, I think, to your point, a significant fallout from that as well.
2: Yes, unfortunately. And we're seeing the impact of that for our kids is the alcohol and drug use on the parent side and just not being able to attend and really provide emotionally for their kids.
1: You know, and it's precisely because of the pandemic's impact on mental health that Doc Wayne staff created the Champions Network. What was the spark of inspiration? How does it work? And how do you spread positive results?
2: Yes. So the Champions Network is approaching its first birthday, let's just say, um, this spring. And really what happened was COVID hit. And we started getting all these calls and emails and inquiries um, from athletic coaches that were here in the United States, but also internationally. And Many of the mental health infrastructures uh, internationally were collapsing, so the small things that they were able to do in other countries were disappearing. So they weren't able to refer to a psychologist or get some community-based help. And I don't know if you recall, Chris, but um, there were differences in sort of the lockdowns per country, too. So some of these folks who were calling were uh, not even able to leave a small apartment Um, And so what happened was we delivered a series called Kids in COVID that you can find on YouTube. There's about 16 episodes of really free uh, mental health support that's geared towards coaches. And there's also some athlete conversations just trying to reduce the stigma. We got to July 1st and we said, this has been great, but this really doesn't serve the needs long-term. And so we launched the brand, The Champions Network, and we have a few different offerings One is really geared towards providing uh, training around how to do sport-based therapy. So that's pretty narrow and um, there's been some clinics and some other youth serving organizations that wanted to learn our model. But the other one is more about equipping the field of youth-centric providers, but really all people, to be able to understand trauma, its symptoms, to be able to be a good listener, to take in that information and then to make a referral.
1: Listening is such a key part of that whole process, and so I I appreciate highlighting that. And also, thanks for mentioning the the kids in COVID on YouTube, and I'll be sure to get that out uh, on our social media platforms for our listeners to take a look at. So is it fair to say it's a lot like the, the Neighborhood Watch concept for mental health? You know, just as the police can't be everywhere and we need to look out for each other, the Champions Network is a way to have more people looking out for each other?
2: There absolutely is an element of that. Uh, So as I said, equipping more and more people to provide safe space for kids, recognizing symptoms and how to make a referral to a professional. Another piece that we're just trying to make this accessible and approachable to the neighborhood watch, as you called them, um, is to make sure it's an engaging learning platform and that conversations around mental health are welcomed. And there is no bad question at all, but just to create that atmosphere for our trainees.
1: You know, I've been saying to our listeners and other guests on the show, I think the, the one positive thing out of COVID is that It's made mental health front and center and it's, you know, hashtag stigma is is a big thing that's out there or kicking the stigma of the Indianapolis Colts owner. And so, you know, you mentioned, we'll talk later about it's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, people are saying that more and more frequently now, which is just great to hear and, and to see. So again, thanks for being a champion for that. You know, and to that point, there's been a lot of focus on mental health care for the general population. Maybe something that's not being asked is who's looking out for the mental health providers' mental health? You know, Who's looking out for the Beckys of the world?
2: (laughs) So we definitely look out for each other. I will say that it's certainly a community where providers check on one another and they provide listening space to each other. But also in a more formal capacity, many, many clinicians, whether they're social workers or um, counselors, they do seek out therapy. So they are, we are essentially uh, seeing each other in treatment, which is a very interesting dynamic as a profession. And also good employers are trying to build supports for their staff, but not all, to be honest. But Chris, beyond that, there really is nothing uh, supporting the provider community, which is hard to swallow sometimes, but at least we do have each other.
1: That's the key right now. So, as the founder of a national nonprofit called Soldier Strong, I work with a lot of active duty military personnel. Perhaps their biggest concern is that they could jeopardize their entire career if they reveal they have a mental health issue. They could lose their security clearance or their job, maybe face a discharge. They could even lose benefits they've worked for years to secure. At a minimum, though, they risk being seen as weak or someone who can't be trusted. Maybe not to the same extent but do mental health professionals face similar challenges if they reveal that they're grappling with an issue such as depression or anxiety.
2: Tough, Tough question. So we as providers live in this society, so it's hard to remove that social context from our experience. So there's absolutely a stigma around sharing and just a fear that there will be questioning of emotional stability to provide this therapeutic space for others. However, I have seen a difference in the field between sharing with your coworkers, that supportive group of providers that I was talking about, and sharing externally with the public or others in a supervision structure or an organization, or sharing with the family that you're providing services to. So there is a difference there, um, but overall, it's not the most comfortable thing to talk about your own mental health.
1: you said before that we can't expect the mental health profession to carry the entire burden. As lay people, as common people, how can we help each other?
2: Yeah, well, first, I just thank you for asking that question as someone that's in this work. Uh, But very simply is skillfully and non-judgmentally listening. Um, and I think one of the things that some people have a hard time with listening is that it's okay to be silent. So it's okay to just sit with someone and to hear what they're going through and not necessarily have the solution. Uh, there's many people, you know, most athletes are action oriented. And it's really okay to just use the power of your being in presence to be able to help people, but also being aware of changes in your families, friends, and neighbors. So if you observe a change, just noticing that and bringing that up to them in a very supportive way and being open to helping connect these friends, families, and neighbors to a provider. Yeah, One more thing too, that is, if you'd like to be really skilled, uh, you can attend a mental health first aid training, which is offered across the U.S. as a way to learn some skills.
1: Terrific. There was a story a month or so ago that more young people are applying for medical school after being inspired by the search for COVID vaccine. They're calling it the Fauci effect, obviously after Dr. Anthony Fauci, the president's chief medical advisor. Do you think the pandemic may produce more mental health professionals?
2: The short answer is no, in my mind. The longer answer is that uh, the U.S. Department of Labor reported that social workers and clinicians more widely, uh, the position, so the demand for the position is expected to increase. Um, but those that are in the work, like myself, we know that the current needs are not being met. And there's demand for mental health providers that people aren't able to fill, especially in certain pockets of the country. And um, the more rural areas really struggle with being able to have uh, efficient uh, enough providers. But my skepticism really comes um, because there hasn't been any equivalent on the mental health side to Dr. Fauci. So we see him, he's a very stabilizing calming force generally. Um, And I would have loved to see someone from the mental health side follow up with him. So Dr. Fauci goes up there, then their uh, psychologist comes up and talks to us all about our self-care and how we can, uh, you know, do some things to prevent feelings of isolation, but there really was not that figure. And then also similar to residency, developing clinicians requires extensive supervision, uh, which requires mature and experienced clinicians So I have a doubt that that's available, but also, even if the applications did increase, that the graduate schools would not be able to immediately then accept more students, which would then bring more to the field. So that's my skepticism. I certainly hope that you're right and there's an effect on the mental health side, but that's what I see as realistic.
1: So let's switch that a little bit. So we've got your skepticism and you've, you've pointed out what sort of what the, the holes I'll say in terms of getting folks in the mental health profession, what's needed to get more of our best and brightest to be people like Becky's out there?
2: Sure. So I certainly um, think that that Dr. Fauci effect, if there was someone that was speaking to the country and had a great personality, that would certainly assist with that, with that, that effort. But really increasing insurance, billing reinforcement, Imbursement rates would help because that in turn would allow employers to increase salaries. And so when we're taking on this, um, these graduate school loans, and we actually do have to be very educated to provide these services, the salaries are not matching up necessarily with the loans. And then more on loans is really um, loan forgiveness for our work. And a lot of clinicians are doing really, really important work in communities that have been hard hit. Um, And I hope that, you know, this loan forgiveness program in the future wouldn't require 10 years of service and really be difficult for us to navigate.
1: You've made the analogy of having a first aid kit in mental health. Does everyone who needs mental health service need to see a licensed psychologist?
2: Certainly not. Uh, So licensed psychologists are obviously very skilled and have a great deal of education and experience. But uh, there's many other types of mental health services or therapeutic services, which are essentially a notch down from that. And I feel very lucky to live in Massachusetts where we have the Children's Behavioral Health Initiative or CBHI, which allows for a therapeutic professional's time who may have a bachelor's degree or associate degree to be supervised by a clinician and then those services to be billed for. So we need more creative solutions that allow for various levels of care in all states. So not just in Massachusetts, but across the U.S. And really to target prevention, mentoring services, use of master's level clinicians, psychologists, and then also psychiatrists. It's incredibly difficult to refer a child to a psychiatrist right now. And just as medicine where the interventions range, as I said, from the Home first aid kit to medical assistance to PAs, and then to doctors and specialists, I think a more comprehensive plan could be rolled out for mental health. And um, although I'm certainly in the mental health field, I really do view this as a public health matter.
1: You know, a few minutes ago on the show, we mentioned the word stigma. And like other mental health professionals, you know, there's a stigma attached to acknowledging when someone has a mental health issue. As you've talked about eliminating the stigma, you said this is another area where we can't leave it to just the mental health profession. How do you envision that working?
2: Thanks for this question. It, this has been a real interest of mine in working with younger kids at Dog Queen, is to really try to find the, the best possible ways to reduce stigma. So we can only do our best as providers and provide mental health. Uh, interventions and services for those who do show up. And I'd love to see a public health campaign aimed at reducing the stigma. So we did it, uh, you know, in the past as a country around uh, smoking cessation. So I certainly think we could draw those lines of comparison and really try to uh, use, you know, marketing professionals experience and sort of the language around it to provide some more engaging options, and to reduce that overall stigma. I also think, so at Dockwing, we use sports um, as the hook, but there's many other hooks. And so if we thought about it as we're going to pair these evidence-based practices with a hook, that that would certainly reduce the stigma across the country if we were able to implement those those services. So, you know, just to recap is like the visuals and the marketing materials, but also using engaging treatments.
1: You know, I love the public service announcement idea. We're seeing all kinds of different well-known names out there coming forward with different mental health issues that they've experienced. Uh, recently I saw Dwayne, the rock Johnson. We've seen Michael Phelps. And
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, Zyvon, I mentioned Jim Ursay, the Indianapolis Colts owner, uh, and one of his players, Darius Leonard, they've come out with kicking the stigma you know, if we could get all of these names out there as one coalition to really make a, to your point, a national platform and national public service announcement, that would just go, I mean, it would fast track this process years, if not decades, in terms of really helping this mental health crisis.
2: I couldn't agree more. And just the power of all of those people together Absolutely. would be incredible. One other thing I've noticed, too, is that there's quite a few athletes that are coming out about their own mental health struggles. But no one has specifically created a platform about kids' mental health. So it would be very helpful if, you know, the Michael Phelps of the world, heaven loves, they would reflect back on what would have helped them as a child and, you know, take on that torch of we need preventative services um, for kids. And while I, I still appreciate all that they're doing, I think someone really needs to take that torch.
1: So I think maybe that's a takeaway for you and I after today's show. We can work on
2: Absolutely. that. Absolutely,
1: I love it. I'm in. I'm in. We've been talking to Becky Roulier, Deputy Director of the Boston, Massachusetts nonprofit, Doc Wayne. He'll be right back after a short break as our conversation shifts to youth sports competition and using the lessons of sports psychology in the workplace. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The
0: White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear just be you a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment
1: Channel.
0: listening to next steps forward to reach chris meek or his guest on the show today please call in to 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: and we are back with becky Roulier. Deputy Director of the Boston, Massachusetts nonprofit, Doc Wayne. Before the break, we were talking about the pandemic's effect on mental health and the mental health profession. Becky, I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about your time as an athlete and a coach and things you learned over those years that can help our audience as they strive for greater personal empowerment and well-being.
2: Nice to be back, Chris. Thank you.
1: Could you share some some of your ideas in terms of talking about your time as an athlete and a coach, and things that you learned over those years that can help our audience as they strive for greater personal empowerment and well being?
2: Yeah, certainly. Um, so that's a big big question, but I think part of the reason that I am who I am today, um, and also am able to help some others, is because I was an athlete and. As a goalkeeper, which most people think about that position, they laugh or they snicker and they say, oh, that tells me a lot about you. Um, I had to learn some pretty specialized skills around visualization, goal setting, um, being able to calm my own nerves and to refocus. And all of those skills have been able to translate into the business environment. I think certainly those can be used for overall well-being.
1: And how did you decide you wanted to play sports? How did you become a Division One athlete? That's that's a big deal.
2: <laughs> so honestly, I don't recall uh, deciding as a kid. You know, as a three or four year old to play sports. I grew up in Billerica, Massachusetts, which is absolutely a sports town. And if you drive into Billerica, you actually are greeted with welcome to Billerica, but right next to it, it says welcome to the home of Tommy Glavin. And I grew up in that town with the true understanding that uh, Gary DeSarcina came from Billerica, Tommy Gleb and a lot of the greats. And he was also listed as a top sports town in Sports Illustrated. So it was hard to not play sports living there. It sort of was like the odd uh, experience. But I, I do actually remember trying to specialize as a kid. So I was so drawn to soccer that, and I was a relatively focused and serious kid that. I didn't want to do anything else. And my mom actually forced me to participate in other sports. And for example, she said, you, mu- you have to play basketball. So I'm not allowing you to just play soccer. And I said, okay, as long as I get to wear my soccer shoes on the basketball court. <laughs> uh, so that was certainly helpful in terms of my social skills and friendships. But how did I become a division one athlete? I was thinking about this the other day and it was not, again, something that I said, I want to be a Division one athlete versus Division two or Division three. I think it just came about for a few reasons. One was sheer repetition, is that, you know, it's well known that 10,000 hours bring mastery in a certain field, but I had a brother who ended up being drafted by the Chicago Fire who fired shots on me in our backyard until it was pitch dark almost every day, and then The second one is just like really being exposed to failure frequently is my coaches surrounding me with athletes who are bigger, stronger, faster all the time. And I was like that stereotypical younger tag along kid that ended up in these games. And I also played on a boys team. So the velocity of shots and like the speed of play just never seemed like an issue. And then also just like the lifelong interest in being mentally strong and coaches exposing me to famous players who worked on their mental game. And I was just so intrigued by it. And I think it ended up helping me uh, on the bigger stage.
1: I didn't know that you played on a boys team as a kid. And we're going to talk (laughs) in a few minutes about coaching boys versus girls. But your time as an athlete took an unusual turn after you injured playing soccer. You found yourself on the track team and became... I think I'm reading this correctly, a hammer thrower.
2: That's right.
1: Not many athletes throw the hammer. How did you decide to do that?
2: So, uh, as you're saying, I unfortunately suffered a career-ending injury on the soccer field, but I was allowed to participate in non-contact sports. So, as part of my stubbornness and my interest in real... uh, team sports or performance uh domains i walked onto the track team and i made the team as a walk on for the 200 meters but a uh, coach came up to me he ended up being the men's coach and said i i see you out there and honestly i was like probably average as a 200 meter runner because it wasn't my sport and he said would you like to be my project <laughs> And on a, a Division I track team, there's like 60 or 70 athletes. So I was like, what do I have to lose? I have nothing to lose um, if I get this personalized attention. And so he had formerly been a physics teacher and was interested in taking a smaller athlete. So I'm, you know, five five on a good day. And seeing if I could spin more times, more repetitions, and really beat out the athletes who had Fewer spins, fewer rotations, but larger mass.
1: That's fascinating. So it turned into a science project as opposed to uh, trying to win the hammer toss.
2: Yeah, that's right. But I certainly did focus on winning some points for my team anyways.
1: (laughs) Perfect. So you went from an athlete into coaching. How did you make that transition from athlete to coach?
2: It was very difficult, actually. So when I had that career-ending injury on the soccer field, I had a wonderful Women's soccer coach at Boston University, who's actually really well known. And so she allowed me the opportunity to be a sideline assistant, um, but recommended that I get some training around coaching. So I was one of the youngest uh, participants in the national training diploma. Um, And it's sort of like a residential program where you go for uh, a week and it's really intensive. I, I remember doing it in Michigan. But that opportunity really opened the doors for me as a coach. But when I when I left BU, I actually went into coaching because I was really struggling with my own athletic identity and not really knowing what to do next professionally. But I I would say that I have grown to understand why I love coaching and really it is fulfilling to me. But that's how I ended up in the field.
3: And
1: as a coach, you've distinguished between competition and true competition. What's the difference between those two and why does it matter?
2: Yeah. So the concept of of true competition comes from the book, True Competition, and certainly recommend to all the listeners to look that up. And the book offers a blueprint for maximizing the potential of competition for excellence and enjoyment. Uh, and that had always really resonated with me as an athlete because I was a type of athlete that couldn't really be motivated by a lot of the typical external factors, but really just would do something or try to do something better for those reasons of excellence and enjoyment. Um, so typical con- a typical competition, as many people think about it, is really to defeat your competition at all costs. And really doesn't allow much room for sportsmanship or sportswomanship and has little respect for yourself, too, which is an interesting concept, you as a, as a person. So um, it's really just parsing out what can the game and the sporting environment really bring for people versus that kind of cutthroat mentality of um, the, almost like the warlike nature of sports sometimes to defeat the other person.
1: There was a story last week, and I had to read it twice to make sure I read it properly, that a men's German soccer coach was being, air quotes, punished for unsportsmanlike behavior by making him coach women's or girls' teams for six sessions. You know, what kind of message does that send?
2: Yeah, I was pretty appalled when I saw that and then also saw the correlation between that and the, the movie that was potentially going to come out on Disney+. Plus. And Disney+, Plus is like kid's. Platform too. So, really, I mean, my response is that it's discriminatory and that that coach should not even have had the privilege to interact with those athletes and have the, their time and attention. Um, But it it certainly continues to reinforce the message that society is sending, that women and girls are second-class citizens, essentially, in the sports world. And unfortunately, we saw this again recently with the NCAA tournament and what they were providing to their athletes.
1: So I've mentioned before with you that I've got a little leaguer in my house. And this may be an overly generalized question because every boy and every girl is different. But are there differences in the way we should coach boy versus girl athletes?
2: Good question. And I hope he or she is having a wonderful season.
1: Just started. So yes, thank Just you started. Glad out there.
2: Yeah. So as you alluded to in the question, it's more important to build a relationship with the individual athlete and understand their social, emotional, and performance needs and really sort of where they're at developmentally. However, it is important to note that girls do face unique challenges around engaging and staying involved in sport. So by the age of 14, girls drop out of sport at twice the rate of boys, which as a woman and a former um, youth participant is really hard to think about. So for girls, it's important to provide an environment that actively combats some of those social norms around appearance, Perfection uh, and the other gender stereotypes, building an atmosphere where positive risk taking is celebrated because a lot of times for girls, um, they don't want to take that risk for fear of the social norms that are in place and really talking and processing through self-doubt and encouraging them to be themselves, like truly, honestly, their identity in themselves Um, and also just because I am a clinician, uh, from the mental health end, there is a difference in, um, how boys and girls present their symptoms and how that affects them overall. So just as like a general stroke, girls are more apt to present with inward system, uh, symptoms. So like withdrawal, um, again, that self-doubt and boys are more typically aggressive or, um, having some difficulties around poor life choices. So you can always keep that on your radar as a coach and being able to adjust your coaching to that.
1: Positive risk-taking. I love that phrase. I was trying to use that a little bit more often. So as we think about children, obviously we think about keeping them safe. As mm-hmm. you talked about your experience with your coach, as you took up hammer throwing, you shared how much you trusted that coach, which I think is what we want in the coach-athlete relationship. But it also made me think of the sand- scandals we see in sports, such as the doctor who abused young gymnasts, the Penn State football scandal, and people who knowingly or unknowingly allow that to happen. How do we teach kids to trust coaches or adults, yet at the same time protect themselves from sexual abuse or other harm?
2: Yeah, this is a very concerning topic. I will add a little bit more about my coach relationship that you were mentioning and kind of that deep trust that was created is when he approached me and said, basically, do you want to be my project? And I said, yes. He was very strict and rigid in terms of you must do these things to be successful. But I didn't experience it as a negative. I experienced it as real interest in my performance and my abilities as an athlete. And so I we had this very deep, trusting relationship that you know was able to make me a better person and better athlete. But you know, back to the topic is first, I'd say that there are things that we can teach kids to protect themselves, but really the responsibility lies with the adults and really creating the systems for safer sport environments and oversight. And that's truly lacking in the coaching profession as it's very unregulated in the United States. Is a bit more regulated internationally, but it's still certainly lacking. And um, it just will be important as a lot more kids return to the fields or the courts as your child is doing, is to be able to recognize there's gonna be more mental health symptoms on the field in the courts and really to provide the structure from the organizing bodies of sport to provide professional development and safe sport practices. But what can you really do for your own kid is um, maintain those open lines of communication with your child Make sure to really listen to their concerns, like everyone is really busy, but taking that time to really listen to them and vet the sports organizations before enrolling your child. So take a look at their policies around quarry checks and overall overall supervision and not letting um, a female athlete be alone with the male athlete things like that, but also with your kids is really equipping them with some skills for self advocacy, and to say this is what it's okay for a coach to do and this is what it's not okay for a coach to do. Um, you know, they can ask you to come early for practice or maintain the team rules, but they can't not allow you to drink water and they can't do things that are, you know, around sexual abuse, certainly. So teach your kids in your home to really have a voice and to speak up and to know when something has happened that's crossed the line.
1: Why is visualization so important to our success?
2: So I love visualization. Um, it was certainly my go-to skill as an athlete and so much so that I would listen every single night to these recordings of uh, what the, you know, peak performance and would drill that into my head, even as a high schooler. So it's just always been my thing, but visualization strengthens the neural pathways and helps promote what we all call muscle memory. Um, So it's a really helpful way to practice, you know, quote unquote practice without the physical toll of overtraining. And it can help in imagining those novel experiences. So if you've been practicing in a quiet space and you know that when you're going to come out there, there's going to be the roar of the crowd is really uh, putting that into your visualization so that you're prepared for it. And also can help you overcome obstacles around PRs or just physical skills that you haven't been able to do. So I also just want to make the point that visualization is not only for the sports environment, but it can really help with those stressful meetings or just those unexpected scenarios that come up of just really visualizing it and practicing in your mind.
1: So let's go from the, the sports world to the business world. You have this advice both for athletes and their coaches, but it's just as applicable to employees and employers. What's the value of knowing our own strengths and our employees' or employer strengths?
2: Yeah, so being self-aware enough to know your strengths, um, it becomes more and more clear when to step forward and lead versus when to support a teammate. And from the coach or manager in the businesses and being able to really mold those skills and personalities into a well-functioning team and also a team that's on the same page. And really knows when to step up and when to step back and support, understanding their strengths.
1: And we touched on this briefly in the first half of the show. You say it's okay to not be great at everything. What do you mean by that?
2: In the sports world, it's filled with examples of specialists uh, who are real big difference makers. And you have the goalkeepers who don't need to be good at scoring the goals, the field goal kickers who don't play QB. And in gymnastics, you see a lot that there's one event specialist. So certainly sometimes during the games or a day in your life, perhaps uh, you might be called on to be a utility player, but, um, It's very tricky to master everything at a skill level that is very helpful and supportive to a team or um, on the business end, so really knowing that you can specialize in something and then call on another teammate to be able to support that other aspect of the work.
1: You're a big believer in goal-setting because it has benefits beyond helping us achieve what we're aiming for. What are some of the other benefits of goal-setting?
2: Yeah, so many. So goal setting, it provides direction. So it allows you that opportunity to really think clearly about what you want. And then the realistic timelines and understanding expectations, especially that's collaborative goal setting within a team is like, what are we aiming for? And what are we, what are we envisioning here? Um, and prioritization also. And just going back to collective goal setting is it helps focus the team's energy on the same objectives.
1: So what do you find is the most effective framework to follow when setting those goals?
2: So I always, as an athlete, was exposed to smart goal setting, which I know is very popular and effective. But as a coach and a leader, I found um, energy leadership to be more helpful because the process is around identifying your desired way of being, and uh, whether that's being a stabilizing factor or an energizing factor or, you know, really how you want people to experience you and then identify interactions or actions that you need to take to be able to either maintain or accomplish that identified way of being.
1: You encourage people to be sure to remember the power of modeling. What is the power of modeling?
2: Yes, So modeling uh, has so many powerful effects on human behavior but it can either go positively or negatively. That's the thing with modeling. So when a person observes another person doing a behavior, they often imitate it and they learn from it. And it's certainly even more true of children is whatever we're doing as a coach or a leader in in the business world, people are watching um, and they're learning from that. So understanding your power in terms of being able to teach positive or negative behaviors
1: you have a favorite phrase, living the dream. Why is that one that you like so much in sports and in life?
2: Yeah. So as someone who's, you know, both in the sports world, but also in the mental health setting, there's a treatment philosophy around dialectical behavior therapy. So DBT and its catchphrase is building lives worth living. So this is for people that are really struggling uh, emotionally is trying to look at what could make their life worth worth even being around for. Um, and so the phrase living the dream is similar to this concept. It's important to live the dream. But in order to actually do that, you have to imagine the dream and you have to vision cast. So uh, it's just so helpful for athletes, but also business professionals to think about what is my dream for my life and what is my dream for my work so that they can essentially try to realize that.
1: I read a blog that you wrote some years back titled Practical Sports Psychology Skills for Goalkeepers. Now, (laughs) obviously, that blog was about goalkeepers, but I thought it's very practical advice for many people as we strive for the right attitude, whether in our jobs or personal lives. Would you walk us through practical sports psychology skills? Only maybe we call it practical psychology skills for personal empowerment and well-being.
2: Of course. First of all, I can't believe you found that blog. It was back from 2012, I believe. Power of Google. But Google. That's right. So as a quick overview, it's really talking about acknowledging and allowing yourself to feel. And um, those emotions are normal, but also validating yourself through self-care um, and self-talk. And then the use of strategies like deep breathing, trigger focus. Trigger focus is an interesting thing where you pick up an object or you tap something and it's a trigger for your mind to reset. Also visualizing your best self uh, and high performance and well-being. And then mentally practicing for situations and scenarios. And in learning these mental skills, just coming with the frame that these take time and you do actually have to put in work to make this happen for yourself the last one is about dwelling on positive emotions and increasing your which would then increase your ability to portray confidence and poise but not just letting those escape in a fleeting moment but really saying wow i feel grateful or i feel happy or i feel joyful right now let me sit with that
1: how does someone get in touch with you if they want to help out with doc wayne organization or have you speak to their group
2: yeah, so you can find Doc Wayne at docwayne.org. I can also be reached at rroulier, which is R O U L I E R, at docwayne.org. There's two R's at the beginning, or via LinkedIn or social media, especially Instagram.
1: And LinkedIn's how we got connected, so I appreciate that. Becky thank Roulier, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you so much, Chris.
1: And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment until then stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.